0: Connor, the first question is for you. It says here, don't you think that Brian is really the better looking brother? Uh, What what do you think about that, Connor? What's your comment on that?
1: I think at this point in time, I'm gonna go ahead and invoke my Fifth Amendment rights. I think that (laughs) that that should translate to webinars.
0: (laughs) Okay, that seems reasonable. Uh, The second one is, uh, and I just got this question uh, today, as a matter of fact, from a a fellow that I'm gonna be doing an, an interview for. And It's about how odd it is that the news talks about the lack of inflation, and yet the supplier prices are going up. Labor costs are going up, and he's raising his prices. And, and there, a lot of people, there are a number of questions in here about this. Uh, what's with this disconnect between what I hear about inflation and supplier prices? And you and I both know that's a question of the producer price index. There is certainly a disconnect between the PPI and the CPI. And the headlines, when right. we talk about the consumer price index, Fed, we know it's not exactly the CPI, but we, we, it makes it easier for to think along those lines. And um, so consumers are in a great shape as businesses are having to raise prices. And if it's a large enough and long enough movement, then it becomes CPI in some parts of the economy, but, but not yet. Uh, did I miss anything in there? And what are you seeing among your client base on this, Connor?
1: Yeah, I think you're right on track. I mean, it's it's the PPI, you know, if you want to evaluate your own price increases from a business standpoint, it's just the CPI headlines are never going to keep up with what you're actually feeling. So the headline PPI and then, you know, some of the data we have access to, you know, there are industry specific PPIs as well, which can be relevant for folks. If they're really trying to get a handle on their, their price changes or, or maybe look for justification for, for price increase conversations with clients. It, it helps to have some of those data points to go into those conversations. And, and CPI is typically not going to get it done there.
0: That's a really good point about the individual PPI. So Connor, do me a favor and uh, shout out your email address. So if somebody wants to know if we have it, where we get it, or we can help them with that, uh, that they can reach out to you. So your email address is?
1: It is c CLOKAR, C-L-O-K-A-R, That's itreconomics.com.
0: Excellent. While we're on the subject, there are a couple other questions related to it. I want to bring it in. One was about uh, lumber prices, hardwood and softwood. So I did a little looking up before we got started. I must admit I cheated. And uh, the hardwood uh, 312 rate of change is is pretty high. Highest at a little over six years at 13.7%. But it's nowhere near where it's been in the past. In the past, the 312 uh, in 2014, not that long ago, was at 23.5. In the past, that 2014 time period, the 3MMA was at a record high. Now we're at a 29-month high. So, I mean, it feels terrible in real time. But the reality is a lot of the businesses that were watching us and that are listening to us now, you've been through this and more in the past when it comes to hardwood. Now, softwood is at... uh, 73-year high on a 312. I mean, that, that is certainly as is painful. Record high 3MMA, but there were record highs in 2018 as well for software PM, uh, uh, BI. So my point of this is, yes, it's painful. You don't like it. So go back in your history and go back to, if you weren't running the shop then, go back to whoever it was and say, what should we have done? What did we do wrong? What did we do right? And enact that now. And then the question became, and Connor, I'm going to kick this over to you, how long is this going to last? How long should we expect this kind of pricing pressure on lumber? In my mind, it equates to housing, but take it from there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we do see these correlate quite well with housing starts and we uh, touched on this lightly in our webinar. Not too much, but obviously we have very fertile market conditions there right now. So you know, this pressure, you know, 2021, uh, I think we can anticipate elevated pricing, but as we look into 2022, 2023, we are going to see those growth rates start to come down for housing, and so that demand pressure is going to soften, and and the the laws of uh, economics are going to kick in here, as these elevated price levels, that's going to bring more supply to bear to the market, um, and as we see some of that demand pressure, I think when we look into next year, uh, we can start to anticipate some relief uh, on some of these pricing uh, pressures, maybe even late this year.
0: Uh, I certainly agree with you. I like the way you call them the laws of economics. Uh, I can tell you went to a, a very good school where I went to uh, what is now called Southern New Hampshire University, not a very good school. They're just kind of called the general guidelines of economics. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Nothing's that firm in our chosen field of, of endeavor. <laughs> um, I like it though. Hey, uh, one of the questions connor um, again we're going to kick it over to you cuz you're the construction guy around here uh when are we going to find the demand for housing uh and the supply kind of level out so we we see what we might call return to normal in terms of pricing and demand and and the build up so what do you think about our housing forecast do you remember it and and what are we going to see there in, in terms of pricing in 22
1: yeah, I think it, it's a similar answer in time frame. I think as we look into next year in 2023, we anticipate quite robust growth from single-family housing starts here. Uh, in 2021, uh, you're experiencing that now, and you're going to continue to experience that throughout this year. And then we're looking for more normal growth rates uh, as we look into next year in 2023. It was really a perfect. It's been mostly a perfect storm uh, from kind of supply getting caught flat-footed a little bit. You know, at this time last year. Due to COVID shutdowns, operational disruptions, you know, we lost a few weeks of the key building season. That combined with folks all of a sudden able to work from home remotely, it opened up different housing possibilities. Couple of that with folks, you know, spending a lot of time in their homes, it, it was a perfect storm in a very good way for the housing market. But we are starting to see some nascent upside pressure uh, on mortgage rates. I think what I'm watching most closely, I, I check on a couple times a month, are the inventory levels. So Uh, As we see all these starts coming online here, we're anticipating north of 20% growth uh, for calendar 2021. Uh, I'm watching that inventory level. Once we start to see that, uh, which is currently dwindling right now, and that bottoms out and starts to rise again, I think that'll be our first sign uh, of some equilibrium between supply and demand. And that has, I believe, a four-month lead time. So that'll give us just north of a quarter heads up when things are going to start to cool down. I'd, I'd expect that to start to show up late this year, early next year, previewing a little bit of a slowdown in conditions for 22 and 23.
0: Yeah, very good. Uh, we have something of a flat-ish uh, single-family housing starts 12 MMT for late this year, early 2002, very consistent with everything you're just saying and, and right on target with forecast. So whoever's in that area uh, and, and wanting to plan accordingly, um, just don't forecast that this rate of growth is sustainable because it's not. And you're going to notice it slows uh, very noticeably in 2022. All right, next uh, area, if you will. Uh, I understand the short-term optimism, uh, but I'm becoming concerned with the buildup in U.S. government debt. And you should be, by the way, my friend. The Congressional Budget Office has forecasted that it will increase to more than 200% of GDP. How is this sustainable? Well, Japan manages to sustain it. And, uh, you know, not the only issue. Now, that amount of debt above GDP is truly problematic, and here at ITR, uh, Brian is actually undergoing a thing where if we use uh, gap accounting methods, which a lot of nations do when they look at their own government, how uh, bankrupt would we be? Because right now, we just use a cash flow basis as opposed to what we would normally call an accrual basis. If we use an accrual basis and <clears throat> recognize all those liabilities, uh, we we'd be in some Uh, Real trouble and the thing is you can get away with it for a long time But eventually we believe it does come home to roost eventually other factors Put more and more pressure on that debt and it becomes harder to afford that debt as interest rates go up And it means the government must either raise taxes which can Slow down economic growth if you do a heavy-handed approach certainly and it can also mean it's harder to borrow it can also mean you're, you're viewed as a risk and the value of the dollar goes down. I mean, there's all kinds of problems that go along with what's going on here. And it's all called the magic money tree, modern monetary theory. And it is uh, truly, uh, we believe, problematic, especially for Connor and for his uh, peers and for Gen Xers. I mean, for us baby boomers, uh, it's boy, we're glad we're going to miss that. Uh, this is going to land uh, squarely on their, on their shoulders. All right, Connor. this one's for you. And I know that you and I talked about this, but, um, you know, cryptocurrencies. And did you just read where China is coming out with their government-sponsored cryptocurrency? And uh, let's expand upon that thought for just a a couple minutes here. Government-sponsored, we touched upon it. Your thoughts on it would be welcome. And uh, the future of cryptocurrency as we go forward.
1: Sure. So I, I saw that same headline and the first
0: line below it was, that it would allow the Chinese government to
1: to track, uh, you know, purchases in, in real time, which I'm not sure I was entirely comfortable with that. So, um, you know, we did, we touched on Bitcoin. That was one of the questions we did get to in our uh, webinar. And, and like I said, I, I think it's interesting. I, I do think uh, it, it is worth me saying I'm not currently invested in it, but I, I do think uh, it's interesting. And I, I prefer those that are not governmentally uh, regulated and controlled. That was one of the concerns you brought up when, you know, if, if the, the treasury says all of a sudden, you know, we want to have our own cryptocurrency or, or impose regulations that maybe reduce some of the appeals of a Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrencies, you know, that's certainly a risk to those. But I think in the absence of that, I find them interesting uh, in terms of, of an alternative, particularly as uh, you know, what seems to be a rapid seduction by modern monetary theory penetrates both sides of the aisle. And, As a convenient alternative to making hard decisions and just continue expanding the money supply and and implications that could have for the US dollar. I I think that, um, yeah, I I think it's certainly interesting and and worth considering uh, from a millennial perspective anyway uh, as we move forward here.
0: Well, I can understand that. I think from my perspective, it'll be a cold day uh, in the underworld before China, the U.S. and other nations give up uh, monetary policy and let it go to uh, uncontrolled, unregulated, uh, unseen forces. And I just don't see them doing that. So I'm uh, concerned about the future, but we shall see what happens in what 1,300 plus cryptocurrencies that are out there today. Bitcoin just kind of being the ubiquitous term, like saying for mica in your kitchen. Uh, right. Gold and silver, somebody asked about near term, midterm uh, for gold and silver does not always follow uh, risk. It does not always follow inflation. It does not always move with the stock market. Is, it's an odd thing. If we could forecast gold and silver real accurately, we would just make our living doing that. Uh, but we don't want to bank our reputation on forecasting gold and silver. Having said that, One would expect an increase in gold and silver values as we go through the second half of this decade, especially as we see those increased inflationary pressures. Um, It tends to mean that you could expect an increase in gold and silver. And as people grow more and more fearful over uh, the debt deficits and global situation, especially if there's an increase in nationalism, you could also expect an increase in gold and silver prices. Having said that, whatever you do or don't do, is of your own doing in volition. Actual results may vary. Check with your metals dealer for actual results. All right, Connor, the global and domestic supply chain is is a, const, is a constraint, excuse me, on growth. Do you expect that to improve soon?
1: Well, I suppose it's, it, uh, you know, soon is a subjective definition. I You know, we talked about this in our webinar. We're at present. We don't think it's you know strangling from a macroeconomic uh, standpoint sure on the margins it, it might be holding some things back and we know particular industries might be more affected than others obviously we know the the plastic and resin situation a little bit more acute right now due to some anomalous weather events down there in the gulf but at least my personal feeling is that it, it's going to be a challenge over the next three to six months because that demand curve you know we know from our u.s industrial production our gdp forecasts, is the demand is going to be uh Picking up, even as some of these supply chains try to catch up, that's not occurring in a static demand situation. We know demand is going to be rising, so I think with a lot of my clients, we're expecting that to be a challenge throughout the middle portion of this year. But, but naturally, we do think that things should start to catch up. Uh, you know, even if it characterizes most of 2021, certainly next year we're going to see things start to to come back into balance.
0: I agree with you uh, 100%, sir. And somebody else asked about the hospitality spend and hospitality remodeling. Normally you would expect to see a lot of hospitality remodeling going on now because in, in economic uh, softness or even downturns, the big folks move in and, and upgrade while well, they have a lot of empty rooms. Not a lot of that going on right now because of the uncertainty. I think once we start seeing uh, herd immunity, once we start seeing the you know the majority of people with the vaccines and we see that and this is obviously nothing we know now, but if we see that the variants don't become the next wave of the pandemic, uh, then you're gonna start seeing that spending going on because uh, we'll begin to slowly uh, move about the country again. And as we do so, uh, they will upgrade, they will modernize, they will even probably get into some uh, pandemic measures, uh, social distancing into the new reality. Strangely enough, while this has been going on in the last uh, year, there have been uh, two new hotels that have opened up here uh, in our city. It's kind of interesting to, to see that going on. Of course, they were under construction beforehand, so they just finished up construction. Not a lot of lights on when you look at them. Uh, I think you're gonna find that that begins again uh, next year. Uh, 22 would be my outlook. We do not forecast that though, that is just my understanding of the situation. All right, Connor, uh, we want to share our outlook for wood use in residential building. Uh we we did that, but uh you know, is there anything else you, we talked about residential building, we talked about wood. Did I miss anything in through there that you want to opine on?
1: Um I I think uh, a group actually I just presented to a couple of weeks ago. We looked at this, you know, wood product shipment. So, if we're not talking pricing, but actual, you know, wood products uh, that as you might imagine correlates exceptionally well uh, with single family housing starts. So, I think The timelines that we laid out in our prior answers in terms of you know outlook for 21 it's going to be more that breakneck pace that we've been uh underway here for the last couple of quarters that should continue through year end and then we're going to start to see that normalization once we get into next year and, and things slow down for you again
0: excellent thank you and somebody asked about our projections for aircraft and i happen to have looked at that one recently and the rates of change are moving up in phase a which means less negative uh, each month, which means we're in a recovery situation. The uh, three-month moving average was for production was also uh, beginning to rise. It was not one of those wild things, but it was beginning to feel that upside pressure. And our forecast does have aircraft parts in production in recovery uh, through the rest of, of this year, through 21 and into 2022. I didn't look real far out, but that that's interesting because along with that hospitality question, the thought was, well, that's dead for years, and yet it's not. Uh, the cyclical pressure is positive and the stirrings in the economy are enough to give some life to that. And then I think I saw on our internal chat that American Airlines was uh, bringing every plane back into service besides the ones that they permanently retired. Anyways, the ones that they had temporarily shelved uh, were coming back into service. So that must mean there are, there are more folks flying and um, Joseph here in the in our company just told me that Delta is going to go back to filling the middle seats before long. Again, all indications that that industry is going to do well. So if you're into that space, uh, you should be pleased with your prospects. All right, let's go on from there, please. Uh, Hiring is an issue. If we could hire all the people we need, we would be able to meet demand. Uh, When will labor availability improve? Connor, I'm gonna take a stab at that, but uh, I'd really like to hear your perspective on it too. This is not something we talk a lot about internally. Uh, I'm gonna, and there's a, fr- a question further down that relates to this, so I'm gonna tie the two together. Uh, you, my friend, are like everybody else in that if you could hire everybody you need, you'd be able to meet demand. Uh, that's not gonna be the case anytime soon. Uh, even when we get past the $300 a week federal unemployment insurance, that's not as big an issue as I think a lot of people make it out to be. It is an issue, don't get me wrong, but I think we're just finding that the the, desire to go to work and the confidence of going back to work. They've been pounded with the safety of going back to work. And then the demand for the skilled labor, which was an issue before COVID, has not gotten any better. And the question that follows is how long? I think this is going to be with us for years. We're not going to see a massive amount of skilled immigration coming in. That's my take on it and therefore your labor problems are just gonna demand that you look for labor efficiencies wherever you can. Somebody had asked about manufacturing labor, which is the other question I wanted to bring into it, and, and how manufacturing wages are going up. And I think the comment even said faster than other areas. So I did a little fact check on that. Manufacturing wages on an annual basis, the 12-12, showing uh, up 1.9%, moving horizontally. For the latest month, 2.5%, and uh, kind of floating around that area. So, I looked at private uh, production, non supervisory, and uh, US medium. The 1212 is at 7.3 and the 112 is at 5.1. Now, the dollar amounts higher in manufacturing, but the rate of growth is obviously higher in the private production area. And uh, when we look at the, all of uh, the US, it's just you know, there's upward pressure greater than what's on, going on in, in manufacturing. And I, in private production, again, the 1212 is at 7.3. Uh, excuse me, the U.S. median. I kept saying it wrong. U.S. median's at 7.3. Private production's at 5.3. Too many threes in there for me. And uh, they're going to be slowing down in their rate of rise. A lot of that was built up trying to lure people back to work or trying to get people to come in and work. Uh, it's going to go to phase C, slower rate of rise. But wages are just going to keep going up along with the insatiable demand, at least until we get perhaps to the next recession, which is on an industrial production basis, 3 MMA, late 2025. Uh, Connor, your thoughts along that would be appreciated.
1: Yeah, I mean, I tend to agree
0: with everything you just said. I mean, if
1: if this individual, if you're already having issues, uh, you know, finding labor, it's, it's certainly not going to get better after the next several quarters of GDP ascent, U.S. industrial production 3MMA ascent, and the associated labor demand pull that that's going to carry. Uh, it's not going to get easier for you. And, and we at ITR, we've been champions, you know, for years of investing you know technological investment in the business automation i mean it's at a certain point we have to accept the realities on the ground and see where we can invest in the business to either augment the productivity our, of our current labor or replace it entirely i'm i'm not you know i'm not necessarily a champion of, of robots taking human jobs but uh, you got to do what you got to do if you want to grow the business and if you can't if you can't get the labor we have to look to alternatives and and everything that we see all the time in, in automation out there it's, there's a lot of exciting things happening it's offering more opportunities and um, for investment than, than we've ever seen before. So I, I think that it's going to continue to be scarce out there for you. So it, it has to be a multi-pronged approach.
0: Don't worry about that AI we're working on, Connor. It has nothing to do with your job. <laughs> hey, uh, you're the construction expert. Sunbelt states when it comes to new home housing starts. Anything different there from what you've already said?
1: Not hugely. Uh, you know, when we look at the Sunbelt uh, and, you know, we look down to Southern portion of the US, a lot of those states have, you know, very good demographics, better than, than others in some cases. Certainly in, in a lot of those states, you know, they'll exceed, you know, population growth that we see up here in the northeast and the upper Midwest. And, and you know, and I've I've always thought, you know, demographics matter. So I, I would assume as good if you know, maybe not slightly better, um, than than what we're looking at in terms of national outlooks, certainly for a state like Arizona, Texas, Georgia, Florida, states like that. And I, I think that, that you're you're looking at Pretty optimistic runway uh, looking forward for housing certainly this year. And like we said, I don't think you'll, demographics will make you avoid a slowdown in, in 22, 23, but um, yeah, I would say business looks bright.
0: Excellent. Uh, question about the impending Great Depression, our, our 2030 scenario. Do uh, We think autonomous trucks will come into play or will money stop flowing into this new technology and the recession make it cheaper to have drivers it's probably not as linear as that. The question is if you've already converted your fleet or a part of your fleet, let's even say 30 to 40% of your fleet by the end of the decade to autonomous trucks, you're not going to convert them back and you're not just going to idle those assets. So even if it is marginally cheaper to have a driver, it's probably more expensive to idle that vehicle and and get um, trucks that need drivers. I mean, there's so much debate upon on whether it costs drivers jobs or not. It may even be a moot point. Uh, Interesting articles written on both sides. Can't really help you with that one, except if once you've made a heavy investment, it's very hard to go back. Copper uh, nearly double. Brass suppliers sold out through 1231. The question is, will copper, nickel, and zinc prices continue to rise or top out? And the answer is, yeah, they're going to top out. Everything that we've been talking about in terms of lumber, everything that we've been talking about, uh, those commodity price pressures changing in 2022 apply to steel and copper, and all the rest of that. When I looked at the 3.12 rates of change, you look for a 3.12 rate of change in those ones that you mentioned in the second half of this year, was uh, you know suggests the upside pressure certainly eases very dramatically as we move into uh, 2022. Uh, small urban family homes, this is for you again because it's residential, for residential use for rental income and long-term property investments income in both Pittsburgh, PA, and Tampa, Florida. Is that a good market through 2029, Connor? Do you want to go out on that limb?
1: Yeah, I I will if, if brought it out onto that plank. I, I guess I can.
0: Well, it depends on uh, how much risk you want to take because this is being recorded. <laughs> so if you want to get into forecasting, Rental income and investment incomes in two specific cities for the next eight years. Uh, I just going on the record now is saying that I'm taking a step back, and, and here's Conor car.
1: Well, I, I think I'll maybe reluctantly dip a toe in. I, I'll just say, you know, the, the Tampa, Florida market, you know, like my comments in the prior question, you know, I obviously we know all about Florida's demographics. So I, I think that there's certainly some long term support there. Pittsburgh, maybe a little less certain. Um, there is that economy tries to reinvent itself from. You know, kind of the rust belt days uh, of, of before into kind of more modern times. I, I don't think the the population demographics are quite uh, as supported there. So so that might be as deep as I wade into that question, but um, you know when, whenever I see Florida these days I get excited until I see that population flow turn around and start moving the opposite direction. I, I think I feel pretty good about there.
0: All right and by the way I agree with you on the population flow into Florida, to me, it's always a question of uh, the specifics of, say, Tampa, and then you get into subsectors of, of Tampa. But the state overall, right. I think, is, is a real win. Uh, somebody asked about the plastics, uh, resin prices, and I think it's the same comment as before. Will there be some decline in the future? Sure, there will be. It's a question of when. Uh, but before that, you're going to see plenty of movement in the 312, then the 1212 rate of change, signaling that slowing in the rate of rise, and you just keep watching them closer that gets to the zero line, the more likely you are to see the prices level off. 112, 312 get below the zero line, then you know that prices are facing downside pressure. Prices are likely already below or year ago levels already in some sort of decline. And if the, those checking points remain negative, then you know that that negative pressure is gonna continue. But watch the rates of change, that's what we do. And we will let you know uh, what you can expect. And the same question on steel prices, which is the next question. Uh, When might they turn back? Uh, You know, same answer. Uh, The difference with steel is that we're looking for non-residential construction to increase in 2022. So there will be an easing in industrial demand. There will be an easing in uh, demand in general. But uh, I think there we're more likely to see just a deceleration. Uh, Steel costs are up, according to this source, 80% in the last four months. That's an unsustainable rate of rise. Any way you look at it. It'll just either hit demand hard or demand will change for another reason. And you'll find that that is not a sustainable rate of growth. And the last thing I would encourage you to do is build your business upon uh, that type of movement. Uh, that's just a good way to be out of step with reality when it comes. The next question is about will corn and wheat prices come back down soon? One of the things that I don't do, and, and I don't think anybody here at ITR gets into it. If, if they do, I do not know that they're doing it. Uh, forecasting ag prices. uh, That has proven to be really difficult over the years because that's a global, it's a weather, and it's governmental, and then it's economic. So uh, we stay away from forecasting those things. Having said that, you can do what I just said. You look at the rates of change, and you'll get a near-term look. It won't tell you a year out, but it can tell you a couple quarters out, what you can expect. You look for that 312 to peak, begin to move down, look for that a negative checking point, 12, 12 high, and then you have yourself a confirmed cyclical move. Uh, so John, that's what I would suggest that you do. Uh, we really do not forecast corn and wheat. Uh, next question was about steel. We already answered that. How about this one, Connor? As a small $35 million privately held commercial flooring contractor, how does a, that person utilize ITR to maximum advantage?
1: Sure. So, I mean, it's, Certainly where we can help it is data. I, I mean, when you talk about getting specific to your business and, and, you know, in the world ITR lives, it's all about connecting your business to the data. I mean, I think that that becomes your maximum advantage, seeing what your predictive data points are. You know, uh, see so Mike say that they're a, you're a commercial flooring contractor there. So uh, if it's regional data you're interested in, you want to check that out. You want to look at, you know, national, uh, you know, commercial um friends and just really try to, to take it, you know, one step further as, you know, obviously you listen to the webinar. So that's step one. And then step two is really lowering that microscope to your business and, and trying to uh, connect uh, your business to your most relevant data points, benchmarks, leading indicators. Uh, and, and I think that's your answer and that's something that we help folks with all the time.
0: Excellent. Now banking sector in over the next few years and over the next 10 years, uh, what do we see in, in terms of impact? I mean, imagine mean, that means economic impact on the banking sector. Well, I think they're going to be healthier and happier because today's interest rates are not uh, sustainable more than a couple of years. As interest rates start to go up, banks start to smile more. Uh, they're more willing to lend. Uh, they have a bigger spread. So as they have... Uh, money that people have put on deposit as they have a federal reserve board has been accommodated with reserves, and as interest rates start to go up, those reserve requirements may go up some. But I think you're going to find banks to be uh, pretty healthy as we go through the rest of this decade. And even now they're they're uh, dealing with PPP money. they're they are making money, they're dealing with uh, all kinds of construction activity. Uh, they're in a good place, and I think they're just going to stay in a good place as we go through the rest of this decade. All right uh proceeding uh to the 2030 time frame for the depression when what things do we expect to see prior to that as leading indicators stock market decline housing prices declining Uh, mark uh, we have a a written a book prosperity in in, in the age of decline it's at amazon and it's uh, audio uh, electronic and it's print there are 10 things you want to watch and you'll you'll spot them uh, as they come you'll see our leading indicators tanking And as they tank, the violence of that movement will be an indication. You're gonna find that there's general disavowal of fear of inflation, and you're gonna find people saying that it's just uh, normal, we can accept this. You're gonna find massive amounts of debts just being talked away. You're gonna find very little attention paid to the fact that there's an aging population, mine, where there'll be 80 million of us drawing down on uh, the government, in terms of healthcare, social security, right now there's 40 million, so we're gonna double that pain, won't be talked about. And you're gonna find pundits, uh, perhaps even Nobel laureates, saying it will be different this time. So that means it's gonna look a lot like the fun of the 1920s, and we're gonna say, yeah, that, it ended bad last time, not this time. And when you find people saying those things, politicians not paying attention to the numbers, business folks with all kinds of unwarranted optimism, um, making irrational decisions based upon the tomorrow that they can't see, that's how you're gonna know you're near the top. Uh, and, and you're not gonna see it first in the stock market. I doubt if you're gonna see it first in housing, and this is more of a cliff, and you're not gonna see a lot of those telltales uh, necessarily up front. Trucking availability, or lack thereof, and rates rising dramatically are crushing this uh, poor person's business. I certainly feel bad for them on that. Um, connor i've not spent a lot of time looking at trucking uh i I know the freight index rates of change are soaring and i know that uh, there is a dearth of trucks and drivers uh but i think this is the same as what you were talking about before in terms of the uh, severe demand pull eases as we go into 22. but i don't know if you've done any additional work into it than that uh
1: just uh the the usual uh glance i I would say you know what i just a lot of my clients have been talking about, about trucking and freight, like all the other costs that we've discussed to this point, whether it's, you know, lumber, metals, um, you know, we look at this as a cost input and, you know, it's subject to demand pressures. And, and right now it's, they're being overwhelmed, but that will not be a permanent phenomena. but it, I think it'll certainly be uh, a challenge. So at the end of that question, do you see this continuing? I would say yes, in the short to medium term, but not indefinitely.
0: Okay, uh, as a 56 year old Gen Xer, Uh, being beyond debt-free and highly liquid in 2029-ish, what other recommendations or suggestions do I have for that Gen Xer? Uh, And that relates to the one uh, before that, which is what kind of investments, uh, what is the best place to park the liquidity? They they go hand in hand. You want to make sure you're both, the two folks that ask those questions. And no matter who you are, you want to be investing in inflation-adjusted assets, real estate. I love real estate. You can always use a REIT you don't want to own it. But you also need to be using something like our ITR optimizer. If you don't want to use that process, find one like it that just adjusts to the changes in the ETFs into the market demand. That something that looks at the cyclical shifts that occur and quickly adjusts so that you know when you want to be in financials, technology, materials, when you want to get out of consumer goods, when you want to grab those inflationary pressures and in which stocks do well. Um, that is something that uh, you can invest in, so I suggest you be in equities, but not just let it ride in the SAP uh, index fund. You can do much much better than that uh, with something like the optimizer so um, search that out you can if you google ITR optimizer you'll you'll find a website uh, you just want to make sure that you are investing and not quote unquote saving this is not a time to save this is not a save environment this is a time to uh, put some risk out there all right uh, connor uh, i think this person may have heard us wrong so correct me if if i am uh, not reading this correctly please the question is why wouldn't you want to lever up at super low rates if you think inflation is coming uh, why would you be in a rush to be debt free? I don't remember saying that you should be debt free now. And I thought we actually said you should go well, out, don't use your own money, go out and borrow bank money and, and leverage up. You just want to make sure that you're debt free by 2030. But now I thought we had indicated that now's the time for that, that rush to the bank and borrow what you can. Am I remembering that wrong?
1: No, I I think you're right. I I think this might be in in relation to my strategy to hopefully be debt free by the end of the decade. But you know, as far as our own clients, we've indicated that this is a great time to lever up and take advantage of these low rates. We've been saying that um, for the last several quarters. So, so it might have just been crossing of some wires there. But um, but but I I think you're right as far as you know. This is a great time um, right now uh, as far as grabbing these low rates, particularly from a business standpoint, as far as leveraging the bank's money, getting the business ready to to thrive over the next several years. And and then I think, you know, rush to be debt free. I don't think I'm necessarily in a rush personally. It's more about just trying to find myself to a flexible position at the end of this decade.
0: Excellent. And this one's right up your alley because you're young, you're hip, you're in the know. Uh, You are, you know, cognizant of the world around you. Do you have thoughts on e-commerce pressuring retail in, and this is the key part, in new ways?
1: I think what's been interesting about COVID in the last year is that it, it, it really hasn't necessarily pressured retail in, in new ways. It's almost been reinforcing pre-existing trends. I mean, we saw firms in the last year that already had, uh, you know, e-commerce infrastructure in place, ability to have their either product or service purchased online thrived. And those that had been dragging their feet for several years in this digital world and not having that, you know, were punished. It didn't necessarily reinvent the wheel. It, it kind of reinforced pre-existing trends uh, over the last year. I, I think what it really did, I guess, in, I don't know if it was necessarily a new way, but I, I think it was a really big wake-up call for uh, a lot of folks that you know had maybe assumed that, that a physical world would and wouldn't need that e-commerce platform. You know, I, I think that probably opened some eyes um, in, in that uh, regard. But uh, as far as new ways, um, I, I don't know if I, I see necessarily new ways. I, I think it's there's just been more intense. Pressure on retail than what we saw pre-COVID. I mean, it's just kind of put those trends on steroids here over the last year.
0: Uh, I certainly agree with you. And this next one's a a, a a thought-provoking question in my mind. How will the Great Depression in 2030 affect the value of the U.S. dollar? Will the dollar be a safe haven? Well, it may be. Uh, you know, we're going to see the dollar uh, kind of torn in two, if you will, because we're going to be uh, financially a mess, and, and we're going to be borrowing up until the fall off the cliff. We're going to find taxes having to go up to take care of that. We're going to find an economy in ruins. And yet if it's global, uh, we could find ourselves, you know, being the safe haven. However, this is a big, however, because we've talked about this, you know, it it could be another nation. It could be another nation that is a better uh, system, uh, financing government, uh, less debt per capita and at a government level, more secure uh, future financially. And that nation could become the safe haven in that time period. It is too early to tell. If you read our book that Brian and I wrote, Prosperity, we talk about how you may want to be looking at Canadian bonds in that time period. And that's a maybe because, you know, Canada could change dramatically in a few short years and and join the United States or in, in our financial walk, we'll call it. Uh, or China, or it could be that Canada remains, you know, a very solid place to be where you want to buy their bonds, and therefore they become a safe haven. Uh, too early to tell, I'm afraid. Uh, check with us in you know, five or six years. We'll have a much better handle on that. Uh, do you, are we confident that the United States will not experience stagnation in the next five to ten years? Well, no, we're not. Uh, how confident are you is really the question there is that uh, possibility that we're going to see a slower rate of growth occur because of uh, the inflation, because of interest rates, because of things out there. So uh, as we have looked out through 2026, there is no stagflation, but we don't have an official forecast going out past 2026 at this time. Is it possible? Uh, Yeah, sure it's possible as we go out through that time. The interesting part is, Connor knows about stagflation because he's uh went to a great school that teaches a lot about econ, but there are a whole lot of people out there who will wonder, how is this possible? Because they haven't ever really lived through stagflation. It is, after all, a, an interesting time. Next one is Alan and Connor. All great news, and I'm experiencing a, 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 a tough time finding people. My question, how about the Fed deficit that is continuing to climb? I think we covered that for you. Uh, Ken, I think you're going to find that it just continues to climb, and eventually it's uh, that... That balloon is just gonna gonna burst. Uh, I'm glad you enjoyed the the, uh, webinar. Thank you for that. Labor force participation rate. We don't talk about that much, Connor, but I like that number, Uh, well, I like that metric. Is at 61.4 and declining? It's the lowest level since 1975. Does this concern you regarding the health of the labor market? Uh, Connor, you first.
1: Well, I mean, I I think it certainly does. I think it's contributing, you know, in in some parts, certainly to some of the labor availability challenges uh, that we have right now. I I think a point that Alan, that you and I harped on in that webinar is that, you know, there's there's 5.6 million job openings out there and climbing. So so the labor demand is out there. So it's somewhat disheartening to see the labor force participation rate declining. You know, I think on the margins, you know, some of the unemployment uh, insurance at $300 a week, you know, could be contributing to that. Um, you know, if if we could somehow achieve higher participation, that could be part uh, of the answer. I mean, if we're not going to answer it with, you know, skilled immigration, uh, and, and then you know we need to get more people uh, off the sidelines. So, so I think that that's probably part. And it's very fair to to assume it's part of the story right now, as far as you know, the jobs are out there in, in a lot of sectors. I, I forget your comment. The 475,000 in manufacturing alone. I mean, the demand's there. So it's uh, you know, so to see the participation rate declining, that's in, you know, kind of, uh, that that's a troubling, you know, departure in trend lines there when, when we have, you know, labor availability or I guess job availability, but, but labor is not necessarily joining the party. That That's how you get, what do we have, three, four comments so far about not being able to find people.
0: Right. And I think it, it's an important metric when you hear commentators and folks, you know, that you're just hanging around with talking about the high unemployment rate. It's a nice thing to mention about the labor force participation rate and gauge reactions and people's uh, thoughts about that. One thing it does do, I think we both agree, is that you can count on that uh, putting continued pressure on wage rates and that's gonna be part of your internal discussions as you go forward. Uh, What is the likelihood of the capital gains tax increase? I think that likelihood is very strong. Uh, If so, what is the impact on the overall economy? Well. Dennis, that's a good question. I think what you need to allow me some room here to answer because if it's going to go from 20 to 25 percent, uh, you know you, you're going to get a shrug. If it's going to go to 20 to 30 percent. You're going to find some businesses making decisions about the, an individuals. Excuse me, not just businesses, sell or not sell uh, based upon 30 percent. Goes to 40 percent. It goes even higher. But I don't think you're going to find a direct relationship to GDP growth. I don't think you're going to see that if we see the capital gains tax go to 40%, which is something that President Biden had said he wanted when he was candidate Biden, that you're going to see necessarily a bend uh, in GDP. GDP is much larger than that. Neither are you going to see a whole lot more cash flowing into the federal coffers because people can make decisions not to sell uh, or to sell before the law takes effect. So I don't think you're going to see this. I do wanna take this time though to answer something else that was asked during the uh, webinar, or I actually wasn't asked, I talked about it. When will the tax increase occur? Um, And I mentioned 22 or 23, 23 because it's not election year, 22 the danger is that they could lose uh, the Senate or even uh, lose a a lot of control, if not absolute control of the uh, House of Representatives. I think that's real danger. The more I think about that, the more I think that they might try to push some legislation in quickly before that grip is loosened on the Senate, because if the Senate goes back over to Republicans and the whole thing kind of grinds to a halt and we really go back to the slow negotiations and and try to work things out. I think we're gonna see things move more rapidly than that. So you wanna be ready with what you're gonna do if capital gains tax goes up in 2022, in my opinion. You may have to dust it off because it'll be a year off, but I'd be ready by then, just in case. All right, uh, when we look in, into um, how long, uh, no, excuse me, uh, this person would love to hear some talking points on debunking the myth. This I'm reading verbatim here. Would you, would love to hear some talking points on debunking the myth that the new administration is the reason oil prices are up, exclamation point. Or is it simple as, quote, no, it's a supply demand, unquote, issue, people, not government? Uh, Obviously, a a question with some passion, but it's, I think, a question with validity, too. And uh, I didn't know people were thinking that oil prices were up because of the new administration. I wish Taylor was here, who's our oil uh, expert, uh, being being housed in, in Texas at the moment. Uh, I don't think uh, when we look at the demand pull, global demand versus global supply. When we look at OPEC pronouncements and we look at what's happening, I don't think it's the administration pulling up oil prices or pushing up oil prices because of anything they're necessarily doing. Uh, I don't think we're seeing that there's a great move to lower prices by a quick reaction where we're not going to need fossil fuels. I think this is a global supply and demand basic economics, but. Connor, I'd be interested in knowing um, what you've been hearing on this subject.
1: No, I think you hit it right on the head. I mean, you know, we're a year removed from basically an unprecedented shock to oil demand, whether it's to, you know, just on highway, you know, miles driven or, you know, jetliner jet fuel demand. I mean, it it took an insane shock. It was April of last year that we saw, you know, the brief dislocation in oil markets, you know, oil pricing futures going negative ever so briefly. I mean, they were practically going to rise by default this year, and, and I'd let people know we had a forecast for increasing oil pricing in place before the election. So I, I think that speaks for itself. And I think that this conversation kind of got muddled a little bit uh, with the Biden administration uh, fracking ban on federal lands, which you know created some sensational headlines. But you know something we talked about, we looked into this. That only affects about 11%. Uh, or it might even be 9%, it, it's something right uh, in that uh, region in, in terms of, you know, the actual land and amount of oil assets and, and production capabilities that that, that that actually affects. So I don't know if that sprouted, you know, kind of a, a narrative that grew its own legs and took off from there. but. Uh, with these rising demands off of unprecedentedly depressed levels w- last year, uh, we were going to see increasing oil prices this year. I mean, that was just going to happen with a global recovery, a U.S. recovery, consumption levels rising. And obviously, we know OPEC is, you know, doing their part to support that rising price trend. So I, I think it's uh, – I think it be – Oversimplification to just say it's you know blame it on you know laid at the feet uh, of the new administration. I think there's a lot going on here, and I think economics is really at the core of it.
0: I agree. I think uh, if you wanted to see it through the lens that it's the new administration, uh, you're going to see it that way. But as we took a take a bit of a broader look, there are a lot of market forks, forces at work, and, and we end with this one, which is our oil and natural gas demand and prices through 22 through 25. uh, And then there's a second part I'll get to in just a moment. The first part is we don't go long on commodity prices of any kind, because that's just a guaranteed way to be wrong. But in general, as a function, and also oil and gas, there's so much in the way of politics in uh, foreign politics, not just US politics, that can screw up a forecast. But in general, we're forecasting global economic growth Uh, from now to 25, varying speeds, you know, not not all breakneck speed like today, but uh, still upward as we go through that time period. And as that demand continues, you would expect there'd be price support uh, for oil and natural gas as we go forward. And there's nothing that's going to happen that quick in terms of moving the world, including the United States, away from oil, that I would shy away from that outlook that there's price support as we go through uh, the next Uh, three or four years. Uh, The second one, I have done no work on other than uh, the most cursory work. And Connor, I'm hoping that you have done more. If not, we'll have to make this a point of study. and Maybe one of us will blog about it before long. Uh, What about the adoption rate of EVs? My opinion is that without significant government incentives, this is a slow adoption rate. It's been that way for years. And uh, the government spurred the adoption to great uh, credits, and then the credits were taken away and the adoption rate just slowed right down. Uh, EVs have significant drawbacks. They have significant advantages in some people's minds. But overall, I think unless the government forces this, the adoption rate is gonna remain kind of tepid until new technology arrives about that battery uh, and the um, ecological impact of that battery. But like I said, that's the extent of my reading on the subject. you have more force?
1: Yeah, I mean, in our internal conversations and in my client conversations, that it'll be a slow and steady crawl. I mean, I think it's probable that under the current administration, we'll see probably more uh, support uh, from a governmental incentive standpoint and try to push in that direction. But you can, you know, you can only uh You know, leverage consumer preference so far, and it's not going to take us to all of a sudden we're going to be done with the internal combustion engine here in four years. We don't think that's going to happen. I, I think current market share for EVs is, is two or three percent at this point, and even with exponential growth, that's you know, it's not like we're going to be at fifty percent. You know, even in the next ten years, it's going to take a long time, and, and technological advancements going to be is going to have to be an important ingredient with that. Like we said, government. You know, thumb pressing on the scale can only really do so much, and, uh, and, and until we get a huge technological breakthrough, which is going to lower the cost uh, of these EVs into a more competitive position, then you need the consumer to want it as well. So, uh, we think it'll be a slow and steady burn in, in, in an upward direction, uh, certainly for EV utilization. But uh, it's—I I think that generally, uh, all my prior conversations with you, Alan, and, and other folks at ITR, I, I don't think that we. Uh, necessarily agree with some of the headlines that says, you know, we'll be 50 plus percent EVs by 2025 or even 2030 for that matter. We think it'll, it's going to take a while. It's going to be a multi-year, multi-decade uh, transition in that direction. Uh, and I'm not ready to say that the internal combustion engines are ever going to go away entirely.
0: Yeah, yeah, that would be hard to believe. Maybe in your lifetime, but certainly not in mine. Hey, uh, thank you for all the questions today. Uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, thank you, Joy, for producing this. Thank you, Connor, for agreeing to be part of the process here. And for everyone who attended our webinar, submitted a question, uh, all of us at ITR, thank you for being part of the community. We appreciate it, uh, we wish you a great day. Thank you.